Welcome to Everyday People Podcast with me, Nyung Bo. I'm your everyday person whose mission is to give everyday people a platform to share their incredible story, learnings and life tools to inspire you to dream and live your best life. I believe that you don't have to be famous, turn over a million plus a year, have lots of degrees or be in a high position to have something powerful to share and leave a positive impact in your community. I believe the only prerequisite is that you are being you and you are living the amazing life that is meant to be for you. That is enough to inspire me to go live my best life. Will you join me on this journey of sharing, learning and living alongside everyday people? I have a very special guest, Lynn Swinburne, joining me today in the studio. She is brilliant. She is definitely a key role model in my life. So I was very fortunate to cross paths with Lynn about five years ago at my cousin's nail salon. I can still remember that Lynn left such an impression on me because she had these funky glasses on, which she explained was from Paris. And I think it was from our second encounter when we swapped our stories that I learned who Lynn Swinburne is. And wow, I was blown away. <laughs> um, she is the founder of the Breast Cancer Network Australia, a board member of the Royal Women's Hospital, a women's advocate, inspirational speaker, and also juggles being a mother and grandmother to three beautiful kids. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much for being here. To start, do you mind firstly sharing what life was like when you were working as a teacher and what was your vision then before the cancer diagnosis flipped your life upside down? It feels about, and it probably was about five lifetimes ago, when I was a primary school teacher. My life was pretty simple actually, pretty one-dimensional but lovely. With my husband Tom, we had two small children, Eliza and James, and I had gone back to teaching once James started at primary school and Eliza was already there. Very fortunately in those days and still today, the education department gave you seven years maternity leave. Wow. So I had been doing a little bit of emergency teaching while I was on maternity leave. I played netball. I started playing golf. The biggest decision of the day, I joke, was whether I'd have peas or beans on the plate at night. (laughs) It was simple and I thought, you know, I'll go back to teaching and I'll probably teach till I'm 50 or 55 Mm. and then we'll retire and go up to Queensland or something. I don't know. So that was the concept. But then I found this area of my breast that was weird. How old were you then? Uh, 40 and the kids were six and eight. And my friend over the back fence was a really good friend, Prue. And I said to her one day, I've got this area that just feels different. What do you think? I said, can you have a little feel? She was like, oh, okay, I suppose. <laughs> so she she had a feel. She said, well, I don't know, but you've got to ring the doctor. Mm. So I had a mammogram and I was shocked because the doctor came back and said to me, I've made an appointment for you to see a breast surgeon. So I went and saw him. I was teaching the next day. He had said to me, ring me in playtime and we'll talk about next steps. I rang. His secretary said, I'm sorry to have to tell you, Mrs Swinburne, your test results are positive. Anyhow, then she went on and she said, you've got to have a bone scan, chest X-ray, blood Mm. tests. We can fit you into hospital on on Monday. So just imagine that standing there in the office, Mm. seeing little girls run past in their school uniforms and me thinking, oh, my God, they're telling me I've got cancer Mm. and they think it's everywhere. I'm gone. I'm history. What's going to happen to my kids? So that started my 
road to doing the advocacy work I ended up doing. And it's also probably because during that time there wasn't enough information out there. No. Did you understand? No. You know, I'm a confident person. Mm. I'm a well-educated person. Mm. And when things had gone wrong in my life, and probably not much had, Mm. I knew, you know, I had faith that I could get through it. But this just seemed overwhelming and Mm. like nothing I could do. I was in hospital. I said to Tom, go down to the library and get all the books you could get. And he came back with this pathetic kind of pile of books that were dreary and didn't answer any of the questions I wanted. And in those days, so that's 26 years ago, breast cancer or cancer was very medicalised. So all the people who were caring for you were interested in was what size was the tumour, you mm. know, what grade was it and so on. No one asked about me. Mm, no yeah. one said, how are you coping? How's Tom coping? Wow. What's happening in your life? Are mm. you managing properly? Do you need to see someone for psychological help, for yeah. example? And you realised that you needed that and you did you yeah, express well, that? Well, I, I took, took to my or... bed and hid mm. under the doona for a long time, mm. to be honest. I did need help, but I was so in such a dark place, I, I wouldn't have known who to go to to get it. Mm. And if friends came to visit, I used to leave a note on the door saying I was sleeping so yeah. they wouldn't come in and because I didn't really know what to say and it was kind of easier just to hide and be within myself. So when did that change? Like when did that attitude? Yeah. and how you see life change and you starting that organisation. So I started talking to other women, um, which I've learned, and when you think about it, is the way women have often learned right back to the time they were sitting around the fire as cavemen and cave women. Mm. I reckon. Women mm. share information together and we're good at opening ourselves up mm. to other women. Women were coming out of the woodwork. I had a friend who said to me, and I thought I knew her quite well, she said, oh, don't worry, you'll get through this. I had a double mastectomy 20 years ago and I've never told anyone. I was like, what? And there was this whole sense of sort of shame. There was some shame about having cancer and, you know, disrupting your family life and putting a black shadow over everything. And then the other feeling I got was I started to get angry and I've learnt that, you know, anger Mm. can be a very powerful Mm. drive. Yes. So I started thinking, how could that doctor think it was okay to tell me I had this life-changing news while I was at work Mm. in a break? Did they think I'd go back into the classroom and teach the kids that day and then go home and say to Tom at night, oh, guess what I found out today? No, I burst Mm -hmm. into tears and Mm. I needed help to get out of the room. And the more I heard the medicos talking to women, you know, and often when you go to your appointments, the walls are quite thin and you can hear other conversations. And I'd lie there and I'd think, oh, for God's sake, this woman's asking you a question and you're just saying, oh, well, never mind, you're alive and that's great, you know. So in my naivety, I thought I would just say to the doctors, hey, guys, this is not really working for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd go, oh, sorry, we'll change. But actually what I really wanted was a whole change in a whole culture and that's really hard to do. And lucky I didn't know that's what I was trying to do because I probably wouldn't have tried. It was too big to like, turn a boat around like that, yeah. you know. How did it come together, putting the Breast yeah. Cancer Network Australia together? What are the things that happened or the people that came into your life to make it happen? And like I said, I started talking to a whole lot of other women mm. and the women came out and I met some amazing women who along the road 
you know, were sharing the vision too. Mm. I learned if you really want to bring about change, you can do it, but you need help and you need to join forces with others. And I also learned that women combine together with a shared vision, Mm. make an awesome, awesome team that builds strength and can do so much. We're a force and we often don't know we're a force. So like I'd go and talk to some support groups and I'd say to them, join with me, we're going to change this system. And they'd say, oh, we don't want to walk to Canberra and burn our bras. (laughs) And, you know, we're just a support group. We just meet for a cup of tea once a week and look after each other. And I'd say, oh, okay. So do you think it's okay for women who've had a breast off to have to make a prosthesis to put in their bra, to put footy socks down there or to make a bra out of bird seed, which is what they used to do because they couldn't afford a prosthesis. Do you think that's okay? And they'd say, oh, no, that's terrible. I'd say, right, well, if we don't think that's okay, we can do something about it. We can go to the politicians and say this is not acceptable in this world that women can't afford to look good after breast cancer surgery. Mm. Then they got it. In those days, it was the concept of lobbying and advocacy that scared the living daylights out of a lot of women who were used to more quietly going about their business of helping and supporting rather than using their voice to bring about change. And you think that you were able to find that in you because you were angry. Yep. And that's part of the success of the organisation. So I think there's like 130,000 women connected through that group now. Mm. Wow. Part of the success was there was a big need. There's no point setting up something if women aren't interested Mm. or there's no need to change. Mm -hmm. Just before we got busy... The AIDS movement was really big. That was driven by mostly by young white males, gay guys, who showed us how you lobby to get drugs available, Mm. for example, Mm. or to change attitudes. So I learned a lot from watching them and listening Mm. to them and I thought those guys have formed a group. Imagine if we got all those women around Australia who've been affected to come together and say, change the system you know, make drugs available for us, do research in the areas we want. You can do that if you get together strongly. I love that you got inspired by them. They don't even know it. Yeah, well, some of them know it. Oh, they do know (laughs) it. So I know you've been talking about women a lot. I want to mention you are so openly a big advocate for women, including for me, and you promote feminism so gracefully without stepping on too many toes. How do you go about it without getting men pissed Mm. off? Because it's a topic, you know, even in construction where... It can make people uncomfortable. Like, mm. how do you do I, I think there are a few things to think about and a few ideas maybe I'd like to share with you and, yeah. and your listeners. The first is you pick your battles. I would go to meetings where everyone around the table was wearing a dark suit and were male and they were all called Professor Somebody and I was none of those mm. things. You know, I was kind of the daggy housewife dragged in. (laughs) I'd work out beforehand what were the things I really, that were really important on the agenda to me Mm -hmm. and what were the things I could just let go. Who cares? But on the really key things, that's when I dug my heels in. I think another lesson I'd like to share is there's more than one way to skin a cat. So if you're getting nowhere by banging your head against a wall over something, stop banging it. It's only going to hurt you. Yeah. Right. So think of another way to attack. And often charm and a smile (laughs) 
it's less scary for them. So if you're in battle or, you know, potentially in battle, you can make things more difficult for yourself by being strident and tough Mm. and clearly negative about everything Mm, because then they just switch off and you get nowhere. So little steps, sometimes little chipping away. The other thing is I think you kind of, and this is a bit sad, but you have to prove yourself. You know the old story about Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did but twice as hard because she had high heels and she was dancing backwards. It's so true. So I'd come round to the table and I'd have done my homework Mm. really thoroughly beforehand. My experience, very few of them had. You know, they sort of didn't need to because they were the big boys and they had all the experience and the knowledge and they did. But because I'd read the papers thoroughly and I'd done my research, I was super prepared Mm. with arguments back and data that I could shoot back at them. They sort of, I could see them looking and going, oh, my God, maybe she does know something Mm. about this. Mm. And my final point about this is... I always looked for the win-win situation. Yeah. So I would think, what's a win going to look like for them? What will they be happy with mm. and what am I happy with? Mm-hmm. And if you get to their win or you can give some ground there, then your position is stronger. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. But, you know, if you're passionate and if you're prepared to put in the hard yards, mm. and you do, you yeah. know, someone said to me, success is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. It's true. You've got to be in there for the long haul. You've got to be fair income about this. If you're just going to fluff around the edges, whatever it is, if it's an important thing you want to achieve, most things that haven't been achieved is a reason and often it's because they're yeah. so hard. So, you know, you can go for low-hanging fruit and pick those things yeah. off and get some wins on the board. But you've got to hang in there. You've got to be prepared to take the knockbacks. You've got to be prepared to walk out of the room and want to rip your hair out by the root. But you've got to get up and go back in. I remember when I was studying my Master's of Engineering, I was finding it really hard. My boyfriend at the time was telling me, you know, think about how many people have this degree. Not anyone just gets it. So if you really want it and you want to be part of that group of people, then you have to just work hard. Yeah, Um, and often women have to work harder, the reality is, which is you know, disappointing and it depends which field you're in, but I still think it's the reality of today. Yeah. If the people in management does not represent you, then it's harder for them to understand you. And you said before, you have to prove yourself because they don't get you, but they'll understand people like themselves. Yeah. And in the world of boards, for example, so I'm on a few boards, it's very interesting watching the big boards, the big players, because they appoint all sorts of other people that are like them because it makes them feel safe. And they're not going to rock the boat too much. It's turning that thinking around. It's the whole idea about diversity on a board, that you don't have the same people with Mm. the same values Mm. and the same thought and the same skills. You actually have a whole lot of people with different views who can challenge and who can say, I've got a different view. So at the Women's Hospital, I'm the chair of that board there. We have good discussions. People say, well, look, no, sorry, I don't see it that way. I see it this way. That's healthy. If you've got a whole lot of people going, oh, yes, 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 you're not going to come out with the best outcome. That's really true. And I love that you're um, encouraging that. Mm. And when you see that there's too many yeses, it's time to change people up. Yeah. It's time for someone to go. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) 
So did you bring in a journal that you could share with us? Do you know what? I brought in a few little things. I've got this funny little package here and you won't want all of them. <laughs> One day when I was flying with Qantas, yeah. you know how they have those magazines in the front pockets? I must have been bored or something. I didn't have my own <laughs> reading, but I picked it out and looked at it. And there was an article here that stayed with me for so long and then I've shared with a lot of, especially young people who are thinking about their leadership and what that means to them. And it's a really simple little kind of grid. On one side, it's got what a manager is and on the other side, it's got what a leader is. Because I see a lot of managers that kind of manage, Mm. you know, I mean, that's what they're meant to be, but they're not leaders. It's okay because you need managers too. But, you know, when you're working out what it is that you want to be, do you want to be a manager or do you want to be a leader? These were some of the things that I thought were really interesting. So, for example, a manager is technical, a leader is visionary, a manager plans, a leader inspires, a manager focuses on systems, a leader focuses on people, a manager asks how and when, a leader asks why, a manager knows how it's done and a leader shows how it's done, a manager says I and a leader says we, and a manager does things right and a leader does the right thing. Wow, I love that. I need a copy of that. Wow. It's a present for you. Oh, thank you. So that's one <laughs> present. The second present I've got for you, Nong, is really different. It's a pink sort of a jewelly. It looks like a rough stone. Yeah. Okay, so I went to a conference in Brussels. It was the first conference I ever went to, like an international breast cancer advocates conference, Mm. and it really turned my way of thinking around because I saw especially the American women. It was in their DNA to get together and, you know, use their voices. And a lot of it wasn't going to work in Australia because it was too strident or it was too... Different culture, yeah. Yeah, totally different (laughs) culture. You know, they had chants and they had all this stuff (laughs) like like cheerleaders. And I was like, oh, God, I'm not going to do that. Aussies are more down to earth, eh? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Thank God. Anyhow... There was an American, a black American speaker. She stood up and she talked about a whole lot of stuff that was beautiful, fabulous. Her name was Billy Avery. She talked about how people's lives are like rough diamonds or mm. rough gemstones that mm. are in the ground. And when you mine them and bring them up to the surface, you actually find out what they're really made of. And you can polish them, your life can polish them, All life's experiences can crush you and what you're made of will determine whether you're polished or whether you're crushed. Can we all be polished? I think if we choose Mm -hmm. to, it's okay to be crushed a bit though. Like I was crushed when I was having chemotherapy and hiding under my doona. Mm -hmm. I was bloody crushed. But you can't stay crushed forever and you have to win. You know, win might look different for different people Mm -hmm. in different circumstances, but a lot of it is determined by how you decide to tackle it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've heard many people say you can't do anything about what happens, but you can determine how you handle that.
And, you know, you look at people, Rosie Batty has just been appointed to the board at the Women's Hospital and you look at her and the life that she's had with her son being killed by her previous partner. Oh, my God. Imagine that. And yet she's managed through that to then become a beacon for a whole lot of other people and to change a system and to make a system think about how we deal with family violence. We can't all be Rosie Batty's, but, you know, remember, I was a daggy prime school teacher. <laughs> I'm no one famous. I'm not a celebrity on TV that comes up with a cause. I'm just a person who had a bad thing happen to them, who got angry, who met a whole lot of women, who got inspired to try and change it. And I look back on my life now like I'm 67 years old and I've got a legacy to leave. And isn't that cool? You're so amazing. I'm not so amazing. I'm a dag. But you know what I mean? That's the power of my story. That's the number one power Mm -hmm. of my story. Very ordinary. Ordinary, ordinary, ordinary. But in the end, rose to achieve something extraordinary. But look at you, Noong. When I met you, and I'm still embarrassed by the conversation (laughs) I had with you because you were doing my nails and I said, and how are you? (laughs) Yeah, fine. Do you work here? all the time. And you went, oh, no. I said, what else do you do? And you said, I'm a student. I said, oh, what are you a student? And you said, engineering at Melbourne University. And I was like, oh, my God, Lynn, <laughs> listen to you and the way you've, my God, I'm still embarrassed that well, I would I do that. No, but you were really smart too because you told me what your dream was, you know, that you wanted to, to be an engineer and but yep. you were hitting these brick walls. Yep. You didn't have the network to hook into. Yeah. And look at you with your networking ability now. Amazing. And I'm very proud of you. Thank you, Lynn. You taught me a lot as well. You're definitely great with networking and connecting people. To wrap up, I do have five quick questions for you. First one, what is the funkiest thing that you own? I don't know about the funkiest, but I've got pretty cool earrings on today. Yeah, you always have cool earrings. They're Italian. They're like sort of net. They match your hair. Oh, yes. (laughs) Name one hobby of yours that you think everyone should try. Well, I play golf. I don't know that I recommend that. <laughs> I mean, I recommend it because it's beautiful, it takes you outside, mm. but it's quite a frustrating game because you'll hit one shot really well and you'll go, oh, my God, I've nailed it, and then the next shot goes nowhere. How um, long does it go for golf? Four hours. Yeah, that's too long. People are looking for a shorter experience. So, you know, people will be playing nine holes and six holes and going into the future, definitely. Yeah. So you'll be able to rock on and pay for an hour and a half and go because people just don't have that, that sort yeah, of time Yeah, that's the only time now. I would give golf a try yeah. myself. Yeah. Your favourite tip for connecting with other people? Smile. <laughs> smile well you've got a beautiful smile too but you you know a smile can achieve so much don't you think even if you're walking down the street and passing somebody if you look at them make eye contact and smile sometimes they get a fright you know they look at you (laughs) like oh my god what's going on But sometimes you get the best smile back. And I'd say put yourself out there. It's easier for some of us who are naturally confident Mm. than others, but a bit of courage is needed Mm. sometimes to put yourself into positions where you think, you know, even when I go to things and I don't know anyone in the room, I feel that, oh, my God, who am I going to talk to? So I I get it, but you've got to try and overcome that because it's amazing how things can come out of the tiniest little 
little, I often think how many conversations or how many people I've missed because I just haven't made that connection, but it was Mm. waiting there. Because even you start talking to people and you go, I know her, and you make that contact. It's amazing. So you've got to put yourself into the position where it's possible for connections to happen. And, you know, you can be honest. You can be honest. And I think you can open yourself up to people. Like one of my big challenges at the moment is remembering people's names. I'm president of my golf club and there's over 2,000 members. Mm. A lot of them know my name. But, you know, you walk down there and it's, hi, Lynn, hi, Lynn. I'm like, oh, my God, what's his name? What's his name? What's his name? But it's really nice that you want to know their name and you... I now say, I'm terribly sorry I've forgotten your name. And it's okay. No one takes offence at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So have a go. What's about the smiling? I remember when I was part of the leadership camp, um, we had to write something nice about everyone and put it in their little jar. And one of the guys left a note in my jar that said, smile a lot, and you remind me to smile. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realise me smiling had an impact on someone, you know, it's really but nice. But you can see then that it disarms people and it takes away that first scary bit, I think. Yeah, because it's, it's warm and inviting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Name a city that you love and tell us why. Well, that's pretty easy for me, apart from Melbourne that I do love, love, love. The other city that I really love is Paris and I've been there many times. I come up from the subway, from the metro, and I immediately feel at home. You know, I've spent a lot of time practising French and honing those skills and that helps a lot too. Can Um, you say something in French? If someone says that to me, sometimes I say this, Salut Marie, plein de grâce. Le Seigneur est avec vous. Vous êtes béni entre toutes les femmes. Jésus le fruit de vos entrées. You know what that is? That is the Hail Mary in French. (laughs) And they've got no idea I'm saying a prayer. They go, oh, my God, that's amazing. Okay, I get it now. (laughs) You didn't say why. Why do you feel so connected to Uh, Paris, do you think? It's interesting. I've always had an absolute fascination Mm. for French things, Mm. French food, French clothes, I don't know. It captures my imagination. Mm. I mean, it is a beautiful city, beautifully planned, big wide boulevard, and a lot of people find Parisians really cold and mm. yeah, that's snaky. What I've, heard. I've never felt that. Mm. They're especially not now because they yeah. need us. Maybe also because you walk around smiling, so everyone's smiling back <laughs> at you, so you don't see the snobs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The last question is share with us three things that you do to keep your spirit happy. The moment I'm watching Survivor on TV, (laughs) I'm enthralled by that. My husband just thinks I'm a total loser. I just find it intriguing, the the sort of strategy, the brilliance of some people, the Mm. dumbness of other people, the (laughs) huge egos on some people. So that keeps me happy. My grandchildren. Of course. Oh, my God. They're totally out of control, but they're gorgeous. And I didn't ever realise what a joy being a grandparent was. The other thing I really love is the natural world. And I'm not sure how much this has to do with having a diagnosis of cancer. And my cancer was was very aggressive. And, you know, I look back now and now that I know and I can read my pathology report and understand what it says, I realise I am really lucky to be here. Mm. I drive people mad because I do things like I see the moon and go, oh, my God, look at that moon. (laughs) And my kids used to go... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a moon, it's in the sky, it's there every night. 
And I'd go, no, but look at it. It's so beautiful. And now my children get it. But those things like a beautiful flower or a twig or a leaf or something like that, there's nothing that we've created that even comes close Mm. to that. So I would say natural beauty and appreciating that. Thank you, Lynn, for joining. Um, And I hope that everyone had something to take away. Well, I hope I didn't sound like I knew everything because that drives people mad. No, you don't, you don't. Because the things I've learned, I've kind of learned, I've made a lot of mistakes. If I can help other people kind of not make those mistakes Mm -hmm. or get to the chase quicker, that would be good, wouldn't it? Yes. Yep. You've just listened to the Everyday People podcast with Nyung Vo. You can find out more about Lynn Swinburne and her work on the BCNA website, bcna.org.au, or look her up on Wikipedia. Listen to more episodes of the Everyday People podcast with inspiring everyday people on iTunes or Spotify.